From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Uh, today, Michael, we have a um, two people that we're going to be talking to. Um, John Gastel is professor of uh, communication arts and sciences here at Penn State. Uh, he uh, is an expert on the subject we're going to be talking about. And he's also, as we both know, uh, the founding director of the McCourtney Institute. Yes, he is. And the, uh, I mean, much, much of what we have in the McCourtney Institute was John's vision. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Working with alumni and the and uh, the College of the Liberal Arts, and uh, John is now a senior scholar in the institute, and, as well. and an all all around good guy, and we're glad to have him on the show. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Take two, um, uh, and and uh, we're happy to have him on the show. And uh, uh, he is going to be uh, joined uh, with Jenna by uh, Robin Teeter, who is executive director of Healthy Democracy in Oregon. Um, she was on campus, and we took the opportunity to to um, to bring them both in and have Jenna talk to us about um, the initiative. Um, Citizens Initiative Review, which mm-hmm. is a program in Oregon that uh, brings together citizens to um, to talk about and to investigate and to report on the uh, the initiatives that are coming before uh, voters in the state of Oregon. Yeah, a very innovative program mm-hmm. and uh, a program that you know could be repeated in other places. Well, they're certainly trying to do that, yeah. and, and and I think they'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. But um, but what's interesting. Is about this uh, program is that it is probably one of the most uh, important and most uh, powerful uh, examples of um, what we we call in the biz deliberative democracy. Yeah, so maybe you ought to explain a little bit about what that means. Okay, so so instead of this uh, notion of democracy where you have people um, co- combining into coalitions to uh, struggle against other coalitions to bring about an objective in politics. What I would call Madisonian democracy. Exactly, right. Yeah. And, and we, um, deliberative democracy brings people together face-to-face um, and in conversation with each other. The idea is that it's all um, um, grounded in this notion of respect, of listening, of saying what you think, and we are all party to this problem, and we work together to get a solution to it. And so you a very, s- a very different type of politics right. than the kind of partisan conflict and uh, lack of civility that we see in so many other discussions. Right. And so this, what's interesting about this is that you know normally when you talk about deliberative democracy, you're talking about um, say a neighborhood group or a um, I've seen it in in uh, Aldermanic districts in right. New now, York and Chicago. Th- there's more to it, though, isn't there? It's not. It's not just that people are brought together to talk. That can happen in a lot of settings, but they're also given information. Isn't they're they? given information, and they and they usually they have a problem, right? It's not just a, right. a, a, a you know a social thing. But say and say a neighborhood has a problem with young people in the park at night. Say that. Um, um, well, you would just say, "Get off my lawn." Well, I would. I would, and and that would be my position. In <laughs> I any try to get that in every show. <laughs> in every deliberative democratic setting, that would be basically my go-to. <laughs> anyway, the point is that this is not meant to be combative. Of course, people are going to disagree, but the idea is that in bringing people together into this kind of context, in this kind of structure, 
you're going to get people to work through their disagreement and come to co- some kind of common understanding. Right. So you're asking people to make a commitment of time. Right. And uh, a, a commitment. Yeah. You're asking them to make a real commitment of time to, mm-hmm. to work mm-hmm. through something. Right. Yeah. And, and then and then when they do this in Oregon, uh, they're doing it specifically around certain types of initiative issues. Isn't that right? That's right. So public ballot issues. Right. W- which are often very complex and difficult for people to understand. So the reason we brought the two of them is mm-hmm. that John is an expert in these citizen reviews and in deliberative democracy generally. Yeah. I mean, one of the really neat things about the research John does is that he's able to think about these things at a theoretical issue mm-hmm. and, and write about them, but also put them into practice right. working with working with people like this. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So we just thought it was a unique opportunity. And uh, let's bring them on and see what they have to say. This is Jenna Spinelli, joined today by uh, Robin Teeter and John Gastel. Thank you both so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, so, Robin, let's let's start with you. Uh, what is a Citizens Initiative Review? Ooh, well, the Citizens Initiative Review, uh, we'd like to call it the CIR, so we can get it out, um, you know, in a short form, is based on a model called the Citizens Jury. Um, and it involves a randomly selected group of registered voters um, between 20 and 24 who will sit for about four full days examining in depth a ballot measure, um, usually statewide but not always. They um, are selected based on uh, demographics of the state that the CIR is being offered in. So in terms of age, um, political party affiliation, um, gender and geography, as well as some other demographic um, characteristics. They are, um, their task is to be essentially the eyes and ears of their fellow voters throughout the rest of the state and hear from the advocates of the ballot initiative, both for and against, as well as a range of policy experts that they can ask questions of to gather information about the ballot initiative. This culminates after four days in a what we call a citizen statement, which is a one-page, hopefully easily readable synopsis of the key facts, the most strong and reliable facts, as determined by the citizen panel, about the ballot initiative. Um, in addition, they come, uh, they develop the strongest arguments for the ballot initiative, as well as some um, reasons why those are important and the strongest reasons against the ballot initiative. Again, all of this as a service to their fellow voters, as a way of providing um, reliable, trustworthy information um, in uh, what is often a sea of ballot measures that citizens have to sort of wade through. Right, and um, so that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> why, what, what are the kind of motivations people have for, for wanting to, to do this? Well. It, it is a range, you can imagine, because we get quite a range of citizens who are willing to do this. Um, the response rate of our mailing, uh, which we call the democracy lottery, um, those who respond, um, about anywhere between 3 and 5%, 5% on a good year, you know, 2 or 3% on uh, other years, is uh, curiosity. Um, Oftentimes, people never get an opportunity like this once they realize it's not a scam. I just want to say there is a stipend, as Robin was saying, mm-hmm. so they are compensated. What is it the average wage of an Average daily wage in Oregon. And plus other all states. expenses. Mm-hmm. And I, at some of these, I've heard people in the introduction say that it's actually the first time for mothers especially that they've gotten away from the home and spent a night somewhere without the kids. 
And for some, that's a little scary. For some, it's totally liberating. Uh, so those motivations are at play. And there is the occasional person who says, I did it for the money. We have a survey that we do uh, at every one of these, and we ask about the motivation. And there was someone who just came right out and said it, hey, I'm here for the money. And he was a funny character. We have young people who are just old enough to vote who do do it for the money. Maybe it always happens in the summer, so oftentimes they're between um, their schooling. Um, or their parent has said, you're getting out of the house and you're doing this. So that's a motivation. Um, and there are those for whom the money is not a factor at all. But to John's point, you know, maybe something different. We also provide child care reimbursement and elder care reimbursement in this day and age. So all those financial barriers are removed to anyone who wants to participate. John, can you talk a little bit about the kind of how we, we got here, some of the, the need for, for this, this type of work and, and you know, why, why this approach um, might, might be kind of a good fit? Sure. In 2000, I wrote a book called By Popular Demand, which was about changing the electoral system to make it more deliberative. So when we think about elections, we tend to think about free and fair elections, right? Make sure that the polls are open, people can get there and vote, that they can recognize the candidates and parties and so on. But a deliberative democratic approach asks for more. It asks whether the election itself involves deliberation, careful reflection, thought, information, uh, debate, all those things that make for a really robust democracy. And I think on some level we take for granted, but in this day and age, we do not. Uh, so what I was arguing in the book was that you can't ask the public as a whole to deliberate on everything on their ballot. I'm from San Diego. I grew up in California. The ballot is insane there. It's not at all unusual to have 12 propositions and you know 14 races plus local, you know, it just goes on and on. You might be voting on literally 40 things. So what we do know is that small groups of people like the ones Robin are describing, who have the time, incentive, and resources to deliberate can do an incredibly good job. Citizens pulled off the street can, in four or five days, say incredibly sensible things about uh, highway department budget planning, uh, how to regulate hog farming to mitigate emissions, all kinds of crazy things that may be political controversies that politicians want to hand off. So during an election, imagine if a random sample like that was convened on everything on your ballot, separate samples for each question. And at the end of that book, what I, I was focused on candidates and candidate evaluation, but I said, you know, the place to start is ballot issues because this doesn't involve any candidates, no politicians, but elected officials recognize that voters are at a loss as what to do about these laws that they're supposed to decide on and legislators understand that you need some deliberative process prior to voting. So that was the clear place to start. Some folks in Oregon got the ball rolling independently um, and here we are. And I would only just add to that that the ballot initiative system in Oregon was the second state to adopt, first state to actually use uh, the initiative system, was originally to, to fight corruption in government and um, big money corruption in government. What it has evolved into is sort of a place for special interests to park their money now, and their interests are not always the public interests. To your point about messaging, they, they are aiming to persuade, not to inform. Um, and I, I don't blame them for that. The system is absolutely set up for them to be able to do that. This basically brings the initiative system back to the people where it, where it originated and where it rightfully belongs. All right. 
or what has the, the relationship with those special interest groups looked like since this, this process has gotten off the ground? I won't lie, it's tricky um, because they make enormous investments in their own messaging. In Oregon, you know, building relationships and trust that they're going to be equally heard, and we are scrupulously attentive to the amount of time that they get and how they submit both their verbal and written testimony. So as long as they feel like it's going to be fair, and it's set up as if you're not there, it doesn't look good for you. Um, so not as a threat, but just this is a really good opportunity for you also to sort of hear what, what questions voters are having about your initiative. It happens uh, enough in advance of the actual uh, campaign that, that, or uh, voting, uh, the election, um, that they can make some, some alterations if they want to. Uh, but we have been boycotted once. Um, to the detriment of the group that, that did the boycotting, and it's never happened since in Oregon. Think about it from their perspective. They are professional campaign consultants. They spend millions of dollars targeting voters with very carefully crafted messages, and they have almost no control over this CIR process. That's the beauty of it, right? You can hit them with your message on day one, and they always do. They come out with the good you know, quotes and you know, maybe a flashy witness or something. The problem is you've got three more days. And if what you just argued is not gonna hold up, it's not gonna hold up. They and other organizations might now appreciate that you've got to go all in on the CIR. Do the best you can and you know, get your message into that statement to the extent that it passes muster. So you talked about kind of the, the first day of, of this process is, you know, presentations by, by stakeholders on either sides of these issues. Mm-hmm. What does what is the, the rest of the process look like? How do you go from that to the, the final statement? The, the first day, even before they hear from the, the uh, advocate campaigns, their opening statements, there is a series of, uh, I would say, orientation and trainings on how to ask good questions and how to, how to, um, how to deliver access yeah. information, yeah. right, and how to talk to each other. I mean, this, this is a panel of a wide range of difference in abilities and comfort levels. So part of it is just that, getting, getting comfortable with being in a group this diverse. But what we call um, staying in learning mode, how do you um, ask, uh, assess the, the strength and reliability of information? After that, then they hear from the campaign's opening statements, their 20-minute pitches, and they do tend to be pitches. Um, and then the next day is a Q&A panel an hour with the campaign side-by-side, which they don't love very much. They don't often spend a lot of time side-by-side unless it's a debate forum. But they're not able to then present. They're only responding to questions that the panelists have, that the panelists also uh, develop uh, collectively. So they actually rank their questions. They come up with them, decide which ones are most important to ask. They ask their sort of top five, and then they're kind of free to, to sort of riff from there on. That is followed very urgently by a couple of panels of policy experts. Not to fact check this much, but, but to sort of deepen what, they're, what the panelists are hearing from the advocates. So I think that is a, that's a huge day. Day two is a really a lot of information to absorb on the part of the panelists. That then ends with sort of a uh, brainstorming session on what did you hear um, and what's new, what we call claims, what new key facts about this ballot measure would you want to enter into 
our deliberations beyond what the advocates had already entered in in terms of uh, written testimony. Now, that sounds like a lot, and she's not even done describing the full four days. That's like half of it, yeah. Yeah, but something to, I want you to appreciate at this point is part of what makes this possible for 20 to 24 strangers, you know, who are suddenly put together with it, is that there's a very simple goal. It's that darn page. All of everything she's saying, right? About oh, scrutinizing their claims. What what are you finding? Those are literally going to be sentences on that page, or they're not going to be sentences on the page. And that's what it all comes down to. And thinking of that helps the citizens realize, oh, that's that's really all I've got to do. You're just writing what the voters need to know on one page. So that all that stuff she's all this detail of the experts and so on is all just for that simple goal. And and the and the panelists now more than ever. They talk about that responsibility. And as she describes the next couple of days, notice how they have to craft that page. Yeah, yeah, so, okay, we've heard from policy experts, stakeholders, now it's time to actually write the statement. Yeah, so day three is a series of editing um, groups. So they look at the written testimony uh, of the campaigns, again, in the form of claims. There are seven that each campaign is able to offer into the, the record. And they start by either deciding if they're strong and reliable, and if they're not, can they be edited to the point where they're strong and reliable, or are they just so bad they need to be thrown out? And it's a series of votes around that criteria, as well as the new claims that the, the, the citizen panelists themselves have brought into the, to, into the conversation. That's a long day of doing a lot of that. Um, and small group deliberations and, uh, you know, again, lots of votes. Um, and then they, at the end of that day, as it, as it is now, it's, it's, it, gets tweet, it gets better every single time. But at the end of that day, they... It's true because the research team criticizes it they, We do, time. and we listen intently to the criticism. It, it, is, it, they do. it, it has true. made us a lot better, I would say. Um, we then do a, um, a first vote on the key findings, what we call key findings, which is the eight most strong and reliable... Um, bits of information about this ballot measure and, and ranked in importance. So that's basically done by the end of day three. Day four is all about writing those pro and con reasons why a voter might uh, vote for or against the measure. So that's the whole statement is those three elements, key findings, right. pros and cons. In the old days of CIR, you might see a claim end up in both places that is, that is completely edited out of the process now where um, the pro and con, all those statements are completely different than the key findings. I recall complaining about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and the, the pro, I didn't realize that could even happen until I first started watching the CIR, and I was surprised as well. And it's a waste of space. It's one page. Why would you say something twice? Twice, yeah. Um, I want to underscore mm -hmm. something, though. I, I think that's the right approach. Is that the, And the key findings, I think, are the most important part of the document because they're at the top of the document. They're centered over everything else. Uh, well, at the very top is the description of the CIR, but... The key findings, they should be able to lean one way or the other, if you will. Uh, it's factual information, mm -hmm. but the facts aren't always neutral about whether or not this is a good idea. Just give you an example from the very first CIR, the proponents wanted to create mandatory minimum sentencing. In the course of the CIR and only during the CIR, were they forced to concede that their mandatory minimum sentencing for repeat felony sex offenders would include a 17-year-old who sent two explicit pictures to a 15-year-old at their high school. That would count as a repeat felony sex crime. That's 20 to 25 years right off the bat. 
they essentially said, well, we didn't intend that. We'll have the legislature fix it. This after lecturing everyone about how the legislature was incompetent, which is why we <laughs> used the initiative. That was in the statement, right? Bam! And, and that was just one example, four or five things. The law was so deeply flawed. Now, sadly, it passed. The statement was not well uh, uh, under, understood by most Oregonians. Most Oregonians didn't even know it was there. 2010 was the first time it had ever happened. But even now, if something that popular, polling at like 70% before the CIR comes along, and the CIR statement was very strong against it, it's not clear that the CIR can move votes, you know, maybe 10% at the outside. I like to say it's probably about 5%. And so what, what percentage <laughs> of the overall kind of ballot, the overall uh, referenda or, you know, what have you on, on any given ballot have gone through the, the CIR? process the the we have a CR commission in Oregon which chooses the ballot measures and it all depends on funding so every year up until this 2016 we did two ballot measures of usually five six ish um, and then we only did one in 2016 and we did zero statewide in 2018 because the funding is not coming from the state of Oregon the CIR law was first passed as a pilot in 2009 this is when state governments were having a fiscal crisis it was kind of a minor miracle that they got it passed. But part of the reason was that it was basically revenue neutral. I mean, it cost a little bit to you know, set up a, a website or something, but that's about it. But yeah, now Massachusetts is a different story. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. So I was actually going to ask where, you know, we've talked a lot about Oregon, but where else has, has the CIR been used? Well, Massachusetts is a state that has learned from the mistakes of Oregon, and r right after the initial pilot in 2016, they introduced legislation to establish a CIR commission and to fund it. So that's through the state, through yeah. the states, yeah. um, through state funds, general fund. Right. So that's working its way through the legislature now. It has the bill has 60 co-sponsors. We've been in uh, in Arizona, which was also publicly funded by the Clean Elections Commission in 2016. So they were actually the first state, That's Arizona, fine. to publicly fund the CIR. Mm -hmm. And we've done pilots in, in Colorado and, and just recently in California. Um, and legislation was drafted in the state of Washington. It didn't come mm -hmm. to a full vote. And part of what's exciting about the CIR is its international application. So it has been talked about in Britain in the context of a potential revote on Brexit. It's been talked about in Finland, Germany, Norway, Switzerland is going to run a couple tests. It's such an intuitive idea. And in some of these countries, we're talking about national referenda with big stakes. How could you not have a process that costs very little in relative terms? is likely to inform the judgment of many, many voters. So uh, I want to I want to come back to the the uh, informing the the judgment piece of it. So um, how do you you measure you know whether or not voters were were impacted by the CIR or not? We rely on the research that Dr. Gastel does. Yeah, so that's me. So we've had funding from the National Science Foundation, from a few public universities, the Democracy Fund, the Kettering Foundation, all of which made it possible to do surveys every year from 2010 right into this year. So imagine that we have an online survey, which we do, and uh, 800 people in it. The simplest version of that is at a critical point early in the survey, 400 of you, after reading just a quick official summary of the issue, which is what everyone would see just on their ballot, they immediately are asked how they're going to vote. They ask, what do you know about this issue? A bunch of true-false questions they're asked to respond to. They're asked what values they think pertain, what arguments they find persuasive. We're basically finding out both where they stand on the issue and what reasons and emotions and so on might have fed into that. 
Meanwhile, you know what happened to the other 400, right? They saw the official ballot title and then they saw the CIR statement. And we, with an online survey, we can even track how long they read it. And off they go, answering the same questions. One of the most consistent findings you get is that the folks who read the CIR statement are just more knowledgeable. They have a better factual grasp of the issue. Again, whether they vote the same depends on the issue and the statement, right? But you can see more reflection on values, a stronger knowledge base, uh, and generally an appreciation of the CIR statement. Not everyone finds it useful. And in fact, those who are the most politically sophisticated, the most partisan, it's not necessarily that they're biased, but they've already done some thought about this issue and so on. But the, the plurality of voters don't have that orientation. They don't have an ideological anchor. They don't follow politics that closely. Right. What is, what is the, the process like to get people to believe what they see on, on the CIR in our era of well, fake it, news? Well, it's and, baked into the yeah. process. So because the, the panel is randomly selected, and and they have to certify that they don't work for a campaign, haven't contributed to a campaign, um, and essentially aren't a, a flack of any sort to serve on the panel, that it is essentially... Um, they are not representative, but they are, they are, I said, the eyes and ears of their fellow voters in a way that their fellow voters don't have an opportunity to go this deep on the ballot measure. So our tagline is information you can trust by the people for the people. Um, it isn't the usual sort of stakeholders. Um, and there are groups out there who, who churn out, you know, very good information about ballot measures, but they still have a stake. There's still an angle. Um, even if they say there's not an angle, we truly can say these folks come in with a with a service mentality that I'm going to do this on behalf of my fellow citizens, and I'm going to do the best job that I can. And and they do. Um, they are they come with the same biases and preconceptions that anyone else does, and they we leverage that into a diversity of of opinions around what is strong, reliable, and, and factual. It is, it's strengthened by their diversity that come in. It's also strengthened by the fact that they're not um, sophisticated um, consumers of this kind of information at the outset. Now, the average voter, looking at their voting guide and seeing this page, doesn't get all that she just said. It's sort of written there in about three sentences that says that. I'm not convinced they're reading that very carefully. But they get the basic idea. This was written by a body of citizens who had a chance to study the issue, and I'm off, and I'm reading it, right? Right. I also would say that the panelists have to work, whether they like it or not, on both sides of the argument. So again, they, they can have an opinion, and they do have an opinion, and they're also tasked with what is the strongest and most reliable um, reason why a voter would vote either way on this, because there are reasons. It, it is simply what, what is the preponderance of the evidence, depending on what your values are. And, and John has been helpful in, in helping us sort of add that bit of information to the pro and con arguments as well. And, because and values we, matter. Yeah. It's really impressive mm -hmm. how they, they sharpen each other's arguments. Mm -hmm. right. So as we kind of start to bring things to a close here, I want to go back to something, uh, John, you said uh, early on in our conversation about when you first kind of you uh, wrote your book, you had thought that this CIR process would work for candidate elections, right? And so where where do, do things go from here? Do you think we could get to a place where this, this process works for, for candidates? Yeah, how, how might how might this, this process look going forward? I absolutely think uh, that is something that has been experimented with in the U.S. and elsewhere, and I, I do think it could happen. 
some people listening to this podcast are probably very politically sophisticated and might be rolling their eyes and thinking, well, for heaven's sakes, I mean, I'm an American. I mean, if I'm a Democrat, I'm voting for Democrats. If I'm a Republican, I'm voting for Republicans. Well, bully for you, and I generally do that too, not always, but um, how are you going to do in the primary? How are you going to do in that nonpartisan judicial race? What are you going to do when your party doesn't have an endorsement? Right? That's actually a very common situation. And the answer statistically is you are going to choose to not vote. Well, thank you very much. That was a very informed non-vote. So I think this process could be quite powerful, especially in those lower visibility elections where there isn't a partisan queue. The experiments are happening. And I, I would be very surprised if we don't see it uh, starting to be uh, somewhat common in the next 20 years. Honestly, these things take time, though. I, I agree. There, there are infinite applications. I don't know that we'll be going to candidate assessment anytime soon. There, there is so much other work to be done that is undone right now that um, we, we want to focus on less politically fraught territory, perhaps. Um, Quite sensible. <laughs> yes. And, and to, because this is an area where public policy is being made and affects state budgets, it affects lives, it affects the social, political, economic landscape for years, for decades Huge in states. Huge price tags. Exactly. So I think there, there's more than enough work and there's room for much more of this. Great. So we're going to close, as we always do on our podcast, with our Mood of the Nation poll questions. Uh, so four questions. Uh, we'll, we'll try to keep this um, kind of on the, on the shorter side. So um, thinking specifically about American politics, what makes you angry? Ooh, um, I've been angry about this for years, and that is the commodification of democracy. That really makes me mad. Like we're selling elected officials like refrigerators. John? I hate to sound partisan, but the cynicism of the Republican Party's leadership and their strategy of disempowering voters uh, and uh, basically undermining basic democratic norms and institutions. Ten, five, ten years ago, I wanted to write a book sort of putting it out there to either party that they could run on a democracy platform. It's actually been successful in Canada, India, Brazil. Um, now there's only one political party that can do that, and that makes me sad. Then, uh, and angry, <laughs> but mostly sad. sad. Then uh, what makes you proud? Um, hmm, what makes me proud? I, I guess, you know, looking at the current situation that our, our institutions tend to be holding up relatively well. There's some resilience there that um, I'm glad uh, is, is that they're maintaining some integrity in, the, in, the, in what has got to be one of the severest tests in, in, in many a decade. I'm proud of the endurance of American pragmatism. When you watch one of these citizen panels or a jury or any of these bodies, even in the most heated partisan environment, you might come to appreciate that through and through they are Americans. At the end of the day, they want to know what will this law do, you know, what's the evidence look like, and they really are capable of listening to it. We live in a remarkably pluralist society, and it's very encouraging to see that that's still very strong. In the right setting, people can really tap into that pragmatism. Uh, what makes you worry? Everything. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm pretty worried. <laughs> and then uh, moving on, what gives you hope? Oh, um, well, as an old person here, I'll just say the next generation. I really see them being very comfortable with difference and diversity in ways that, that my generation didn't and is still fighting about 
So I'm, I'm very hopeful that they're, they're going to um, do what needs to be done in terms of uh, sort of reweaving the fabric of democracy in a way that, it, that it's crying for right now. And my principal collaborator and I have finished a book on the Citizens Initiative Review that's under review. And it's been sitting there under review long enough that the title has had the punctuation change after the short title. The book's short title is Hope for Democracy. That was a colon when we first submitted the book, but now we agree it's a question mark or we'll look like idiots. Mm. So that doesn't directly answer your question, Mm. but it does tell you that my feelings uh, have darkened somewhat, Mm. even since we finished that book. All right, well, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you both uh, so much for your your time today. So uh, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Okay, we're back, and that was a really interesting interview by uh, Jenna of uh, two very articulate people talking about a really interesting interesting process. I, I was struck by this phrase that these citizen boards are essentially the eyes and ears of the voter. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you're dealing with some of these initiatives and referendas, you really need, voters really need eyes and ears. Right. Right. I mean, I think, you know, it might be useful, uh, Michael, to just kind of talk a little bit. I mean, because, you know, Pennsylvania doesn't have this pro- program. So it's like a Western thing for right. the most it, it part. Really is, yeah. Right. It really is. It's something that grew up, uh, you know, <clears throat> states whose politics were formed more during the progressive era mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. in earlier heavy, heavy machine party time. Turn of the century. Tend to have. Yeah. So you see it in a lot of the Western states in mm-hmm. particular, the wide use. And, and you know, in many, you know, the... Uh, some of the spread of marijuana legalization has come about through initiatives and referendums. Oh, there have been some incredibly important, I mean, not to say good, <laughs> but important initiatives have come, especially out of California, Prop 13, mm-hmm. uh, Three Strikes and You're Out. I mean, yeah. enormously important um, policy came through the initiative. The problem I always have with initiatives and referenda is that, uh, and, and the project they're doing, I think, uh, tries to address this but also to me just highlights some of the problem, which is that, you know, this is what legislatures are for. Mm-hmm. In, in many ways, it, the, the, and, and this really was as sort of the Madisonian ideal of representative democracy, was that, you know, people would choose leaders mm-hmm. who were in effect, better than themselves. I mean, this was a lot of the conflict between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Who do you want for a representative? And, and the Federalists went, went through a lot of hoops to try to ensure that uh, there was a kind of filtering that went on so that, you know, you were choosing people of quality, people of character, however you want to think about it. Uh, But people who, in effect, were being hired to make these decisions. And uh, because, you know, not everybody's a plumber and not everybody can fix their own plumbing and and people shouldn't necessarily be making their own laws. Well, the, the founders were I mean, we've said this before, but the founders were scared of democracy, right? Right. I mean, and and, and you see some of the reasons for their fear manifested in what's happened through the in, in, uh, the initiative and referendum process, right? Exactly. That that issues are are uh, reactive rather than thoughtful, that they're that they're um too simplistic. Right. I mean, to me, the most the the the, uh, there was a kind of chilling anecdote they told, actually, uh, about the uh, 
I think it was the three strikes law or the sex crimes it was law, sex crimes, mm-hmm. right? And some seventeen-year-old uh, where they didn't realize mm-hmm. something, and and I'm thinking, yes, that's why we have congressional hearings or mm-hmm. legislative yeah. hearings, and that's why we bring in experts, mm-hmm. and that's why that's why we rely on uh, legislative committees where people have been working on the same issue, and the staffers have been working mm-hmm. on the same issue for years and years and years because they know this stuff, right? And uh, and the public doesn't. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not. I'm not imputing any kind of bad motives to them. They just mm-hmm. don't know. That's mm-hmm. not their job. They mm-hmm. have jobs. And they hear they <laughs> and it's very difficult to um intuit these bad cases or these hard problems or these unintended consequences when you literally come before 30 initiatives, 12 initiatives, six initiatives, and you're deciding right then and there. So, you know, when I look at this project that they're doing, I think it's really important work. Mm-hmm. And but it, but in some ways, it just highlights to me the problem with trying to make policy this way in the first place. I, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I, I really do have about as much negative to say about this whole process and how it has just been co-opted and and um, exploited by by the same powerful forces that the that the whole effort was designed to get around in the first place. Right. And so I don't know that this is a great solution, but I do think that most people in these states um, feel like they they it's theirs that's it's part of their history there there's no way it's going anywhere and if that's true then the best you can do is to come up with ways like this to um to mitigate the negative effects no no disagreement there yeah yeah, yeah. you know another thing that struck me about it too had to do with a recent yougov poll that i saw the other day that that confirmed something that I've heard from my students for many years. So this had to do with the fact that a lot of uh, younger people say they don't vote because they're not knowledgeable enough. And what the YouGov poll was showing, too, is that they don't think anybody should be voting who's not really knowledgeable mm-hmm. enough. And that this is a particularly a problem with younger voters. And to me, this just highlights that kind of problem. The, the whole reliance on these sorts of initiatives, the idea that this is basically saying that in order to be able to vote effectively here, you need to have a group of 20 people willing to give up however much time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and be paid right. <laughs> to be able to come up with a fact sheet so that you have enough knowledge to go ahead and vote. And, and I, to me, that's like that's actually the wrong direction to go on democracy. I think democracy should be bringing more people in, not fewer. I, I, I don't. I think that's right, but the the fact is that again, it was designed to get around this problem. It's not. It it does not get around this problem. And in other words, you have this whole industry that is designed to. You're talking uh, about the initiative uh, yeah, referendum initiative, right, industry to figure yeah. out how to how to phrase this. They have people who go out and get signatures to get it on the ballot. They they market test different ways of framing it, and so all of this is just um, has become yet another manifestation of of party yep. and and of of partisanship, and so. It's just it's just like we're chasing a tail here. Right. That. So now the citizens initiative is meant to or designed to, uh, you know. All right. Well, that didn't work. Let's try this. Right. Yes. I mean, it's an example. It's a really interesting example of the hard work of democracy. Yeah, it is really interesting. And we should uh, do more with this deliberative democracy. Why don't we put put that in a memo, send it to Jenna. All right. 
It yeah, won't. We'll and do we'll it. see what happens because yeah. we just do what she tells us to anyway. <laughs> we should mention today as we well, uh, right, si- yeah. sign off uh, that uh, w- this is our first show that we've recorded since winning the uh, one of the People's Choice Podcast Awards. Yep. We are now an award-winning podcast. It's all very exciting. <laughs> and uh, we, we should use this occasion to thank our listeners, mm-hmm. people that nominated us yes. and voted for us, yes. certainly. Our listeners, uh, our guests, mm-hmm. give up their time. They're not all selling books. That's right. Yeah. And some of them are just friends of ours that yeah. we've like, twisted <laughs> their arm. <laughs> and, 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 and our colleagues at uh, WPSU, the mm-hmm. public broadcasting station in, uh, in State College, because we just wouldn't be able to do this without Yeah, them. absolutely. Yeah. Andy Grant is our producer, and he does a great job. I, I mean, I don't know where, where the producing end and the editing begins. But anyway, yeah, we, would, uh, we, we are beholden to them, and, and we are grateful for them. Yes. So this is the award-winning Democracy Works uh, from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy. Uh, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. Thanks a lot for listening. Thank you.